are in the building business. Ours, of course, is a spiritual building, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2 and verse 5, that each of us are living stones, and that as we are put together, we build up that spiritual house in the Lord. The act of building by some has been defined, and I quote, a combination of certain elements with the view in mind of a finished product, end quote. We labor in the local congregation to produce the finished product. We give of our time and our talents, our energy and our work, in order that we might grow as a local congregation or assembly of the Lord's people, and that we might be influential in bringing precious souls into the fold of Christ. The only reason you and I have a right to exist as the Church of Christ in Talladega is to be stacked together as spiritual or living stones building up a spiritual building in God in order that we might lead those who are lost to the saving power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the fifth chapter of the book of 1 Thessalonians, beginning in verse 9, Paul had these words to say, For God appointed us not unto wrath, but unto the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, exhort one another. That word exhort there is the same word that's translated in verse 18, comfort. And they are interchangeable there. Exhort one another, comfort one another, and build each other up, even as also ye do. As we build each other up, fellow members grow in their responsibility unto God and consequently will become teachers of God. In the fifth chapter of the book of Hebrews and in verse 12, the writer talks about those who by reason of exercise and maturity and growth are now teachers of the Word of God. So as we build, as we grow together, as we work together in the cause of God, we are doing so to help each one of us grow to the point that we can be teachers of the Word of God because we are maturing and we're growing. Thus we understand that growth is achieved both spiritually and numerically. And I want to stress that growth is achieved spiritually and numerically and in that order. There must be spiritual growth before there can ever be numerical growth. One of the problems that we face in the church today is that there are many who are trying to achieve numerical growth separate and apart from spiritual growth. And thus we read about and hear about and see all kinds of gimmicks and gadgets that are brought in to try to get people in attendance in number. And there are many who are saying, my, my, look how we've grown, when in essence what's happened is that people have left another congregation ten miles down the road and have identified with this congregation no growth has taken place. One has lost, the other has swelled, but there's been no spiritual growth, and thus numerical growth has not come legitimately. There can never be and never will be numerical growth until each of us has grown spiritually and we're taking the Word of God into all the world and thus preaching that Word. 
Our priority needs to be that we remain faithful to God's Word regardless of the numbers. We trust that numbers will increase. We trust that people will obey the gospel. But our priority must be that I'm going to be faithful to the Word of God regardless of the numbers, regardless how many are present, regardless how many obey, regardless how many listen. I'm going to be faithful. We're going to be faithful to the Word of God. And that's our number one priority. I want us to look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and look at some things that are laid down, with especially verse 11 as our catalyst. Wherefore, exhort one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, and build each other up, even as ye also do. And I want to observe this passage and some passages in 1 Thessalonians 5 under the heading, Building Blocks of Christianity. And as we observe this lesson, I want to observe with us three building blocks of Christianity. Three things that must be present. Three, three things that are necessary if we're going to build what God wants built. If we're going to exhort one another. If we are going to comfort, encourage, build one another up as we should do. And in building the church into what God would have it to be. Now, you know already that if we're going to build this spiritual house, there ain't no way under God's Son we're going to do all three of them tonight. So don't get in a rush to get through. But I do want us to understand them, and I want us to look at them one at a time, as you would do if you were building a house. You're laying the foundation. You're going to lay the blocks, one on top of the other. The mortar needs to be mixed just so. The blocks need to be laid just right, or else with the coming of the wind and the weather and the water, then these things will crack, the building will crumble, and it will not exist. And so it is in Christianity. If we don't build it right, then we're wasting our time. If we don't lay the blocks correctly, then the growth, is, as God would have it come, is not going to come as God said it ought to come. So let's lay the blocks one at a time and learn them and make application in our lives. I want to observe with us tonight that the first building block that we need to lay in building Christianity into what God would have it be is that we must build upon a good foundation. Those of you who know anything about building houses know a lot more than I do about it, but you realize, and all of us do, that unless, first of all, there is a good foundation then we waste our time in building because it's going to crumble, going to fall. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7, 24. Whosoever therefore heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, he is likened unto a man who built his house upon the rock. Isn't that a solid foundation? And the rains descended and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it stood. Now Jesus assigns the reason for it. Because it was founded upon the rock. In Luke's account of that, he says, because it was well-builded. Here's the matter of the man who digged, Luke says, and went deep and laid the foundation upon a rock. And he said, when the stream arose, the flood broke against that foundation or against that house, and it stood, Luke said, because it had been well-builded. 
And so when we begin to think about Christianity, and we begin to think about laying those building blocks, we're going to have to begin with building block number one, and that is a good foundation. We might subtitle building block number one a good foundation by saying that it means respect authority. The foundation upon which the church is built and upon which Christianity lies is the foundation of authority. We must begin by respecting authority. One of the greatest battles we're fighting today in our world is the battle for religious authority. How does the Bible authorize? There are those who are now saying that the Bible doesn't even authorize congregational singing top, side, or bottom. And they've said that in an attempt to get the instrument in. They've said, well, we'll grant you your argument that it doesn't authorize the instrument, but we're going to maintain it doesn't even authorize congregational singing. So tonight what you and I did is not authorized, according to Don DeWeld and others who are members of the Christian church who are trying to get us to merge with them, and thus they are arguing on what they call a new hermeneutic, which simply says, by what authority are things established? What is the authority of the New Testament? And how does the New Testament authorize? Well, we've said for a long time that the Bible teaches both explicitly and implicitly. It doesn't teach us anything as far as an explicit statement is concerned, but it teaches us implicitly. My name is not in the Bible explicitly, and so I must imply from what Jesus said in the Bible what I am to learn and thus infer the right lessons therefrom. How does the Bible authorize? Is a great battleground. So if I'm going to lay the foundation for Christianity and we're going to build on these building blocks, we're going to have to begin by understanding what is the proper authority? And what is the proper authority in the church, and how does that authority work? So, building block number one, a good foundation. Subtitle, Respect Authority. And I've subtitled it for the purpose of our study that we need in building on that good foundation to respect the servants of God. We must respect the servants of God. There must be a proper relationship to and respect for authority. Now, you and I live in an age when authority is not respected. We live in an age when people say, there's no one going to tell me what to do. I'm going to live like I want to live. If you've been out on the highways recently, you have observed that there are some people who don't believe in authority. They say, I don't care how many signs you put up on that road that says 55, I'll do 100 if I can. And as long as I can get by with it, that's what I'm going to do. I don't care about authority. You see it in our government. There are individuals who say, I don't care what the powers say. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't respect authority. But friends, we see it in the church. There are those who are saying, I don't care what the authority is in the church, I am not going to respect it. So if we're going to build on the right foundation, this is where we've got to begin. We must begin with a proper respect for authority, the respect for the servants of God. Authority is an essential, not an option, but it is an essential in building New Testament Christianity. Without proper foundation, without proper authority, the foundation itself is shaky 
and it will not stand. In Matthew 15, 13, Jesus said, Every plant which my heavenly Father planted not shall be rooted up. Thus, if the church is not built as God wants it built, if it does not rest upon that bedrock of authority, then it will not stand. And in the day of judgment, it too will be rooted up because it won't be the true New Testament church unless it's founded upon the proper authority. And so that's where we have to begin tonight. Beginning in verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul admonished the Thessalonians thusly, verses 12 and 13. But we beseech you. Now notice verse 11 said, build each other up. Here's building block number one. Respect God's servants. But we beseech you, we encourage you, we beg you, brethren. See, written to the church here. To know them that labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them exceeding highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. Now just a casual perusal of the Bible will cause one to realize that those who are to be known, those that labor among them, those that are over them, those that admonish them, are the elders of the New Testament. They are the elders of the church. And this is where we begin, in the authority of the New Testament church. God has authorized that elders be the delegated authority in every local congregation. Now, we must mark it down that elders have no rule at all outside the congregation where they work. They cannot go into another congregation and tell that congregation, what they can or cannot do. Elders have authority only over the local assembly, the local congregation, wherein they work. That is extremely important. That we understand that in laying down the building block of authority in the church. But in the local congregation where they work and worship, they are to be God's delegated authority in matters of judgment. You see, Christ is the only foundation of the church, 1 Corinthians 3.11. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has all authority, Matthew 28.18. All authority hath been given unto me, said Jesus, both in heaven and on earth. Jesus Christ, then, the only foundation of the church, the one who has all authority, delegated authority through the guidance of the Holy Spirit to the apostles. In John 16 and verse 13, really in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, he talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is going to come. The Paraclete is going to come. And is going to guide the apostles, not you and me or any living being today, but guide the apostles into all the truth. And whatever they speak, they'll speak of the Holy Spirit, and he'll not speak of himself, but whatever he's learned, that shall he speak. And he'll bring to their remembrance all things that Jesus had taught to them. That's not written to you and me. It's not written to any living being today. That was given to the apostles. Jesus delegated that authority to the apostles through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they wrote it down in the Bible for you and me. Holy men of God were moved, born along by the Holy Spirit of God, 
And they wrote these things down, Second Peter 1, verse 21. And thus, every Scripture inspired of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for discipline which is in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, furnished completely unto every good work, Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That could not be the case if those were not inspired Scriptures. So whatever God has delegated or handed down through the apostles, through the Bible, then you and I can rely upon as a good building block or foundation in Christianity and in establishing the authority that is to rule in the local congregation. Through the revealed Word, then, you and I learn that elders are appointed by the Holy Spirit. They are appointed, according to Acts 20 and verse 28, to feed the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made them overseers or bishops. Now, any man who claims to be an elder that does not feed the flock is just disqualified himself. The elders under the New Testament reign that are to be the foundation block of Christianity, the authority, are to be men who feed the flock. And thus you see the criterion of elders that is laid down in the New Testament. The qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and then other work areas are laid down. Here's one of them. They are to feed the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made them bishops. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and in verse 3, Peter says that they are to tend the flock of God which is among you, exercising the oversight, now look at the authority, according to the will of God. They are to tend the flock. According to Paul in Acts 20, they are to feed the flock. They are bishops in Acts 20. They are to exercise the oversight in 1 Peter chapter 5 and in verse 3. Now, when you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 12, you observe that here are the elders, and they are to be these individuals who meet these requirements. Here are what the elders are to be, and here's the relationship. We must respect God's servants if we're ever going to build the relationship that God wants in Christianity. The elders must be what God wants them to be, and the response or relationship must be what God wants it to be. So what are they to be? We spend a lot of time in First Timothy 3. Brother Curley's just dealt with that in Wednesday night class, and in then Titus 1 also. But then look at Acts 20 28. They're there to feed the church of the Lord. They're to feed the church of God. And then look at 1 Peter 5 and verse 3, and they're to tend that flock. And you get the idea in both of those that they're to be pastors, don't you? That they are to be shepherds who are leading the flock. You never read of a shepherd that's doing his job going behind the flock, driving it. Those of us who grew up in the farm know generally sometimes if you get cows to go anywhere, you have to drive them. But you don't drive sheep. You lead them. And when the shepherds are behind the sheep, they're in the wrong place. And they're not doing what God intended for them to do. Here's the idea of pastors. Out in front, leading in every area in which they're asking people to go, they are to be the leaders. And so they are to be the ones that are the shepherds. They are to be the ones who are the pastors over the flock. 
Now, when that is the case, look at what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, in that first building block of authority. We beseech you, brethren, number one, to know them that labor among you. Notice that Paul here describes these men who are the elders as laborers. Isn't that interesting? Here are the elders, and yet they are laborers. Know them that labor among you. Well, you go back to Acts 20 and 28. Feed. Now, you don't feed somebody without putting out some effort. You go back to 1 Peter 5 and verse 3. Tend the flock. You don't carry on those functions of tending and feeding as an elder in the church of Christ without being one who's involved in work, one who is involved in labor. This idea that so many have that elders are board of directors and they're to sit back in a meeting room somewhere and hand down dictates and decisions cannot find any credence in the Word of God anywhere. That is not the picture of an eldership anywhere in any scripture of the Bible. They are those who are laboring, those who are working, those who are out front. The Old Testament principle was the elder shall serve the younger. They're the ones who are in service roles. And that's why I entitled this first building block, Respect the Servants of God. That's what true elders really are. They're servants. They're not dictators. They're not a board of directors. They are not only decision makers. Sometimes when I listen to people pray for elders, you come away with the idea that the only concept that we have in the church of elders is that they make decisions. Because generally in our prayers, that's about all we ever pray about them about. Help them when they make their decisions. We need to pray that God would help them get out and be shepherds and be pastors. We need to pray that God would help them know how to exercise oversight. That God would help them be tenders and feeders as God wants them to be. And not just relegate that role and that authority to the idea of decision-making all the time. That, that's just not it. In fact, if you know anything about leadership, you know their decisions won't go very far unless they're the ones who are laboring them up. And all of us have seen that happen in various areas in life where people are handing down decisions, but they're not out there working and they're not involved in it, and the decisions don't go very far. So here Peter says, I want you to know them that labor among you. So here's the work of elders. They are to be laboring in the church where they oversee. But then look at number two. And are over you in the Lord. It is beyond my understanding how that anybody could have ever come up with the idea that elders don't have any authority except by example. I don't know where that originated, unless it originated with somebody who didn't want to be told what they could or could not do. The Bible teaches that elders have authority. How in the world can anyone be over somebody and not have authority except by example? That just won't fit. It won't fit the idea of what the work of the elders are here. While they are to be tenders of the flock, who's going to decide how the flock need to be tended if they don't have any authority? They are to feed the flock. Who's going to decide what the flock is fed if they don't have any authority except by example? It just won't fit. 
And yet that's a false doctrine that's hindered Christianity because we never have built the first block right. People have gotten off the wrong way in laying that first block of respecting the servants of God, laying that good foundation of authority, because while they will labor the point that elders ought to be among the church working, that's point number one, we omit the fact that they are over you. And notice where they are over you. They're over you in the Lord. They're not over you in the world. They're not over you in, in the idea of how much money you're going to make in the world and that kind of thing. They're over you in the Lord. According to the will of the Lord and in the work of the Lord. These elders are to have the rule over the local congregation where they are. We now have a false doctrine in the church that says that the church ought to be governed by majority rule. That's where we're headed. And they're saying elders don't have any authority except by example. So if anything comes up in the church, that the way we ought to decide what ought to be done is, is we just take a vote on the thing and we let the majority rule. That's where some have already gone, and that's where we're headed. And it's a misapplication of a passage like this to understand that elders do have authority. Now, we all recognize they don't have any authority in matters of faith. All of that's been given to God. That's laid down. Nobody can change that, Revelation 22, 18 and 19. If anybody does, then his name is going to be taken out of the book of life and the plagues are going to be added to him as the principle. Don't have any right to change a thing on matters of faith. If our elders got together Monday night and decided next Sunday, when it comes time to observe the Lord's Supper, we're going to use soda crackers and great drink, they'd go to hell for that decision if they didn't repent. They don't have the authority to do that. There is no authority in all the Bible to use anything but unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine in the Lord's Supper, not carbonated soda and soda crackers. They don't have a right to make that decision. But if they did say next Sunday morning we're going to observe the Lord's Supper as the very last act of our worship service, then they have a right, every right in the world to do that because that's a matter of option. That's a matter of judgment. But they don't have any right to say that we're going to substitute something for the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. They don't have that right, but they do have the right in the matter of judgment, in the matter of opinion, or of, of, in the matter of that which one can choose to do either one way or the other. Back when we were remodeling the building, I put in my plea that instead of putting shoes back in here, we put rocking chairs in here. And I'm really serious about that. I would, I would love to just have a rocking chair. And I know I'd probably get drunk watching everybody rock, but, you know, I'd just like to sit in a rocking chair. But the elders decided that that wasn't the thing to do, and I don't remember ever leading any rebellion over that. They had that authority to decide that. Now, that didn't necessarily meet with my judgment, but it's a matter of judgment. Somebody has to make the judgment calls, and God said it is the elders who are to make those calls. And so... You can look around and determine right off that I didn't win that argument, did I? I didn't have that authority to say that's what we do. And I'll tell you something else. One elder didn't have the authority to say that. Sometimes we get the idea, well, I'll go to one elder, and if one elder says it's all right, then the elders have said that. That's not true. One elder does not have a right to make a decision for, for the eldership. The elders must make those decisions. One elder cannot make a decision for the eldership. He's not the eldership. He is one of the elders. 
And so when the eldership has made a decision on matters of judgment, God says they have a right to make those decisions, and that's what we ought to understand. Here's the building block of Christianity. Those elders have God's authority to make decisions a matter of judgment. So here are the ones who are over you in the Lord. You and I need to understand that, and we need to realize that. And then he says, thirdly, and admonish you. Their responsibility is to admonish us when we need admonishment. Now, we don't like to be admonished, but that's their responsibility. Sometimes elders get the idea that we ought not admonish people. It's going to hurt their feelings. God said admonish. And you cannot always make decisions on what ought to be done if we're not somebody's going to get his feelings hurt. That's his problem if his attitude isn't what God said it ought to be. But that admonishing must be done. That's part of their work. That's what Paul said here. And if they are to be the ones that labor among you, now if I can argue tonight that elders are to labor, and I can argue tonight that they are to rule, then I believe I can argue they are to admonish because they're in the same verse and they're joined with coordinating conjunction. And so you and I ought not get all bent out of shape if they admonish us in the Lord, if what they're admonishing on us about is true. And rather than getting upset about it, we ought to appreciate it, because that's their work as elders in the Lord's church. They are to work with us, they are to work over us, and then they are to work in our behalf in admonishing us on things we need to be admonished about. We don't always take it in the right spirit. We don't always accept it the way it's meant. But we need to work on that, and they need to work on being willing to let out the admonishing that God intends for them to do. That's their work. And so here is that first building block in respecting God's service. That's their work. That's their authority, and they are to exercise it. Now, I think tonight if we were to say, well, the elders aren't doing that, then we'd have to say there aren't elders. It's kind of like the little boy that said to his daddy, well, daddy... How many legs does a cow have? Daddy said, son, a cow has four legs. He said, Daddy, if we call the tail a leg, how many legs would he have? And Daddy said he'd have five. And the little boy said, uh-uh, Daddy, calling a tail a leg doesn't make him one. Calling a man an elder doesn't make him one. What makes a man an elder? Whether or not he's doing what God said elders ought to do. Calling a man a Christian doesn't make him one. What makes him a Christian? whether or not he's doing what God said Christians ought to do. Calling a man the President of the United States doesn't make him one. Now, you could put Ronald Reagan on one side and Rich Little on the other and put a screen in front of them and let both of them talk, and you probably couldn't tell which one was talking. But that doesn't make Rich Little the President of the United States, does it? And calling him that doesn't make him that. What makes the man a President of the United States? He meets the qualifications, and he's doing that, which is the work of the President. So calling a man an elder doesn't make him one. That's why, brethren, that if there's one area in the church where you and I really need to do some hard thinking and some hard training is we need to begin with little boys getting in their minds that one day I'm going to grow up and serve as an elder in the church of the Lord and I'm going to begin to qualify myself right now. And they grow up with that idea all along. I'm going to qualify myself. I'm going to meet those qualifications. And then when there's time to appoint them, these men are qualified and they are ready to serve as elders. 
I know of cases, and you do too, where there are some people who have almost been forced to serve as elders because people come along and say, well, we want you to serve. And they'd say, well, I don't think I'm qualified. But somebody would say, well, we really need you. We've, we've got to have you. And somehow in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1, these other passages, that just doesn't seem to be one of the qualifications that we want you to serve. You see, a man is an elder when he's eldering. A man's a deacon when he's deaconing. A man's a preacher when he's preaching. A man's a Christian when he's living the Christian life. And calling him something when he's not doesn't make him that. So we need to begin, in my judgment, to train little boys who are growing up to be elders in the church of Christ, to be men who are qualifying themselves to be elders. I, in 15 years of preaching, have never seen very much emphasis given to that. I hope you have, but I haven't. Through those years we talked about, man, we need boys to go off and preach the gospel, and we really do need that. But how often do we talk about we need boys now who are qualifying themselves to be elders in the body of Christ? I know elders who look around sometimes and they scratch their head and they say, who's going to follow us? And sometimes they honestly don't know. How we could change that if we had a training program going on with the elders in the lead of that program, training boys to grow up the elders in the Lord's church. That's what we need. We need men who are like these men right here. And when they're like these men right here, God says they are my authority over the local congregation. Now, since we've seen what they ought to be, let's see what I ought to be toward them. See, it wouldn't be fair just talk about what they ought to be without seeing what the Bible says. I ought to be toward them. And he does that in this very verse. Now look at what he says. Here's my responsibility toward these elders. Number one, we beseech you, brethren, to know them. That's an important word. To know them. Thayer said, that this word is defined as to perceive by any of the senses, to notice, discern, discover, to turn the eyes, the mind, the attention to, to experience, and here's the definition I want to, I want to underline in our study tonight, to have an interview. To have an interview. This type of knowing can only come from personal contact, then, can it? Now, here are men who are over us. They labor among us. They are to admonish us. And then the Bible says that I admonish you to know them. I want you to have an interview with them. I want you to be able to pick them out. I want you to be able to recognize them. I want you to look at them and turn your mind toward them and pay attention to them. All these aspects of the word know here. I want you to know your elders. Well, how many of us know our elders? Well, let's just break it down to some very simple questions. Number one, do all of us know who they are? That's where you start. Let's see if we know who they are. Could you tonight, just on off the cuff, if you had to, take a pencil, piece of paper, and write down the names of all six of our elders. Could you do that? Somebody said, we ain't got six. That's right. Could you write down the number we have? 
Do you know them? You know how many we have? Who they are? First of all, do we recognize? Then secondly, how well, since we recognize them, how well acquainted with them are we? How many of us have taken the time to have them into our home or to have an interview with them? Paul says, I want you to know them that labor among you in the Lord, these that watch in behalf of your soul. Now, if I don't know them, I can mark it down. If I've got a problem, they won't be the ones I go to. I can mark that down. That I won't ever go to them. Because when I have a problem, I don't go to people I don't know. You're afraid to go to people you don't know. You're afraid to let yourself down with them. You're afraid to reveal any intimate things to them. You're afraid to just be you in their presence. You won't go to people whom you don't know. Now, if I don't know the elders, that means they cannot counsel me because I won't go to them. Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, that you know them, that labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, that you know them, you have an interview with them, you'll be able to recognize them, and that you can go to them and talk to them about all these various things. Do we honestly know the elders? And if 15 years of observation counts for anything, my answer would be no. In the general congregation that I'm aware of anything about. You think about a congregation of 2,000 members with two elders. You think every member has an interview with the elders, knows the elders? It'd be kind of hard, wouldn't it? It really takes some effort on the part of every individual to know those elders. But you take a congregation of 200 when, we, when nobody has made an effort to know the elders. Now, the elders are to know the people. Do our elders know all of our members? It's embarrassing to talk about somebody and have an elder say, well, who is that? But it's embarrassing to talk about elders and have members say, well, who are they? Who are those fellows? What are they doing? What is their work? Uh, all I ever see them, they're running around the church building or they're... They're reading letters or they're handing down decisions. But who are they? Have I had an interview with them? And do I know them? You see, that first building block of Christianity is, I must respect God's servants, but I can't respect them if I don't know anything about them. And so how many of us who are members of the Church of Christ, from these young people who are members of the body of Christ with the same responsibility that I have to the oldest member here, have had an interview with the elders and know who the elders are and know the elders well enough that you could go and sit down and talk with them. You know what generally is the case that I've found out? People are scared to meet with the elders. Now, why is that? I can tell you in a nutshell. They don't know them. That's why you're scared to meet with somebody you don't know. I remember the first time I was ever sent to the principal in school. I really wasn't guilty at that time. It was guilty by association, but I got sent. And he was a little old fellow, but he'd bring those seniors in there and bend them over and they'd touch their ankle and sometimes they'd roll out of there. Everybody in school scared to death of him. I trembled all the way to the office. And he sat me down and had some other business to attend to, said, I'll get back to you. And I could imagine a million and one things he was going to do when he got back to me. And I sat in there and trembled. I didn't know him. You know what he did? 
He sat down with me and we talked with one another. And until the day he died in Atlanta, Georgia, a few years ago, he was one of the best friends I had in this world. And after that interview with him, I never was afraid of him again. If I got sent to him for being in trouble, I knew I'd get punished for it, but I was not afraid to go talk to him. He was my friend from then on. And I knew him. And when he became superintendent of the schools, I spoke for his teachers several times. We were good friends. And I could have gone to him and talked to him about anything I wanted to. I knew him. I wasn't afraid to go to him. Do you know why members of the church are afraid to go to the elders? They don't know them. Members of the church look at elders' meetings like I look to go into that principal's office. At any time elders say, we want to meet with you, people start shaking in their boots, and they ask exactly what I asked that day. What have I done wrong, and what's going to happen to you? Because we don't know the elders. Now, if I've done wrong, I ought to be afraid. But if I hadn't done anything wrong, I don't need to be afraid at all. Now, elders need to do a good job of communicating to people why they want to meet with them, too, and that'll help break down some of this fear. But we need to know the elders. I want to give you an illustration. I don't know that I've even told our elders this. But there was a night that our elders asked a young teenage boy to meet with them, and he didn't have any more idea why they wanted to meet with him than anything. And, and he hadn't done anything wrong. They just wanted to meet with him and ask him a simple question. But one of them said to him, we'd like to meet with you after services. And that boy was literally scared to death. He met me in the hall and said, what's going to happen? And I said, man, don't worry about it. Don't be upset. You haven't done anything wrong. They just want to talk to you. And I'm telling you, I know what I'm talking about when I say people are afraid to meet with elders. And brethren, it's a problem right here that until we eliminate it, we're not laying that solid block on the very foundation of this thing. If people are in sin, they need to repent of it. But if we haven't done anything wrong, we ought not be afraid of sitting down and meeting with those who, number one, who are laboring among us, if they are, number two, who are over us, if they are, and number three, who admonish us, if they are. We ought not be afraid of that. And if we just make up our minds, look, if I'm in the wrong and they call me in and confront me with it, I'm going to repent of it. What should there be to be afraid of? If it's proven according to the Bible that I've sinned, then I'm going to repent of it. Isn't that the attitude of every Christian who wants to go to heaven? But outside of that, why should I be afraid to sit down with them? I'll tell you why. It's because we don't know them. And brethren, if the church in Talladega is ever going to grow, it's going to have to be when the members and the elders are so close to one another that we feel like a family. Amen, Walsh. We're going to have to know one another. Now, I moved here almost seven years and two months ago. And you know what the first thing the elders...